When Paul uh, made the request, I was thinking about it, and I was uh, thinking, basically, what he's saying is that I'm elderly. <laughs> and uh, I was happy he didn't say I was infirm. So, uh, so we have a wonderful portion of God's Word to study today. I'm glad to see you all here. Let me take you back to the year 1970. 1970, I was in Vietnam. I was sent there by the United States Air Force to fly a, a small plane serving as a Ford air controller. And uh, as a Ford air controller, we would frequent smaller bases. It wasn't a, a job where you flew out of a big base. You were generally associated with an arm, Army unit. But they had to have a runway, of course. And uh, when I first got there, before I was assigned to my duty squadron, they thought it'd be good for me just to get familiar with the land, to fly around, and basically haul trash from one place to another. At least that's what we call it, trash haulers. So I was hauling stuff to a base, and uh, neophyte. And uh, I went to this one base that was like uh, northeast of Saigon, carrying a load, and I came in, everything looked fine. You know, gates were open, guards were up, the, nothing was happening. Trucks were driving around people. Uh, there was a couple of helicopters parked by the runway. They didn't look like they were doing anything, just kind of parked there. And I thought, all's good. Came in for a landing, and I was starting the landing roll. And all of a sudden, I experienced this severe pull driving the aircraft towards the left side of the runway. I did everything I could, you know, brakes, control services, you have you know, limited capability in an airplane. But I did what I could, but I couldn't stop it. It kept getting closer and closer to the runway, and I was trying to slow down. And uh, finally, the uh, left front tire contacted the gravel on the edge, and of course that was that was the end of things. The airplane spun around, you know, because the tire was caught in the ground. And uh, I looked out. I thought maybe I'd blown a tire on landing, but it, the tire was fine. And then the, uh, at some point, the controller came back on, and he said, uh, what happened was that those, remember those two helicopters, Cobra gunships that were on the, off to the approach end of the runway? They got a call for troops in contact. And instead of flying down the runway that they're supposed to do, they couldn't do that because I was sitting there. They decided to peel out like a couple of street racers. And I had, all of a sudden, I was subject to, you know, I don't know, 50 knot tailwind, crossing tailwind. Took control of my plane and, and pulled it to the side. I'm sure the designers of the airplane did not have the requirement that the plane be able to survive emergency takeoff to Cobra gunships. And I don't know that they could have done anything. But the good news is that unlike human designers, we're in a church, the church that God is building. God has full knowledge. He has full control. He is sovereign, and he is moving his body in the direction he wants. He says, the gates of hell won't overcome his church. And we can be confident of this in his activity with us. So today we're going to be studying 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. If we could all turn there a moment. Let's see if I can get there myself. Don't you know it? I have every, every chapter marked except the, that one. Okay, 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. I'll read it and then we'll pray and get started. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer or elder 
must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for building a church. Thank you for giving your word to instruct us. Thank you for giving us spirit to guide our steps, to change our heart. Thank you for the wondrous grace that you've shown us through Christ. In his name we pray, amen. <clears throat> the, uh, I didn't look to see if the outline was up there. The outline today is uh, the big point overall theme is that God is sovereign. The sovereign God is building his church. And there's two sub points under that. One is that God leads all his church to greater Christ-likeness, all in his church to greater Christ-likeness. And God calls men out of his church to exercise oversight. God builds, God leads, God calls. When I was studying this passage, I wanted to be careful that I didn't treat it just like a laundry list of behaviors. Because the fundamental issue here is our heart, and I'll stress that many times as we discuss today. But when we, uh, first thing I wanted to emphasize was that the system that God has set up for us is not a two-tier system of citizenship. It's not where the body of Christ is divided so that the elders are on one side, and they're perfect, and then there's a lower tier consisting of everyone else. Rather, we're all in this together for the sake of the gospel. And because of this unity, most of the character qualities that we see in this passage in Timothy apply to all of us without regard to the position that he's placed us in church. If I had time and we could go through a book like Colossians or 1 Peter, you'd see the truth of this statement. I don't, can't demonstrate it to you now, but I think you can see the truth. So I came up with a homework assignment. Everybody, I'm sure, is excited about homework. School has started. So here's the thing. Look at the book of 1 Peter and identify the key doctrines, the motivating principles, the exhortations to obedience, and the promises that are applicable to you as a follower of Christ. Say it again. Key doctrines, motivating principles, exhortations, and promises that are applicable to us as followers of Christ. You'll, you'll see the same words and concepts in 1 Peter that you see in 1 Timothy 3. They're in these passages, they're mostly focused on the body of Christ. In 1 Timothy 3, they're focused on the elders, but the, the same concepts and principles throughout the Bible. So there's nothing new here. And as we discuss elder qualifications, that's the context we must keep in mind. This is not to minimize the requirements for elders, but to elevate the requirements for all of us. As I approach this passage, I was looking for a key to help understand the focus of Paul's teaching. One approach that I, as I try to assess it from viewpoints, one approach that I found helpful was to examine the passage and see which item was not like the others. You know, just like Sesame Street. One of these things is not like the other. One of these things is not the same. So I looked at the the passage and tried to come out with what was different about this. How was he distinguishing these different attributes? Maybe if you look at the passage, you'll, you'll uh, see who, what that is, or maybe you'll come up with a different one. For me, it was verse 6, which says, He must not be a recent convert, or a novice, as the New King James says, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. 
That last phrase, I think I should clarify, when it says not fall into the condemnation of the devil, it's not telling us that the devil can condemn anybody because the devil can't condemn. It's only God that condemns. But the principle there is the novice may become conceited and he may con- be fall into the same condemnation, condemnation that the devil fell into because of his pride. That's the issue. So the big point there is just not a novice. And, and it isn't an implication in time and grade. He doesn't say he has to be a believer for three years or 10 years or five because time and grade doesn't accomplish maturity. What he wants is uh, people that have demonstrated maturity. That's what he wants. And he knows that you can't get that instantaneously. A person has to be tested before they're considered for elder. And this testing will reveal heart defects and provide opportunity for correction. I have another interesting story to share you from my military experience. <clears throat> At the Air Force Academy where I uh, went to school, they had four uh, PE classes, one of which was boxing, and they had uh, three intramurals sports. And then one of the intramural sports was boxing. And when I was a freshman, I had the opportunity to be chosen to be a part of the boxing team. 155 pound weight class. I know it's hard to believe, you know, 50 pounds later, but uh, that's where I was. And so, uh, Went to training my first day and the instructor told me a few things about how to hold my hands, how to parry, how to jab, do simple things like that. And uh, spent a lot of my time punching a bag and no real sparring. Well, the interesting thing about punching a bag is a punching bag doesn't hit back at you. They just sit there. And so the day came when I had to fight my first fight and uh, I was a total novice. Turned out my opponent was not a total novice. He was a year ahead of me. And he, was, uh, he went on to win a, a weight class in the wing boxing championship. So it was quite an interesting time. The first round went okay. The second two rounds, not so much. And uh, I came out of that fight with two wonderful beautiful black eyes like you've never seen before in your life and a massive headache. And so right there I learned that being a novice was not a good thing, that you needed to be tested, that my instructor didn't do me a favor by not testing me, not putting me in a sparring match. When I took the class, then I learned those things. We were told step by step how to do different things. We practiced them in sparring with a partner who is a realistic opponent. And we had, had real fights. I can't say that I won every fight, but uh, things went better. I didn't have any more black eyes. So I consider that a success. It's interesting that Paul uses the same analogy in 1 Corinthians 9.26. He says, I do not box as one beating the air, by discipline my body and keep it under control. See, that was a problem. As a novice, I was kind of beating the air. I didn't know how, what I was doing as a boxer. And Paul says, as, as believers, we don't want to do that. We want to be as a person who's under control, who understands the uh, situation we're in, and we discipline our body to bring it into submission to Christ. Sanctification is a theological term for this growth in Christ-likeness and it's progressive and never-ending. And I think I need to stress that, that it's progressive. The elders haven't arrived. They're not in some exalted state before selection and they don't arrive after either. We're still learning just like you. Paul said in Philippians 3.12, not that I am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. Because we are Christ, we pursue Christ's likeness. That's the reason, and it's a heart, heart issue and a discipline issue. So it is important for elders to be tested and to demonstrate some progress in sanctification and having an ongoing teachable attitude that will continue that progress. But let's step back a minute and look at the Christian life in panorama and put the pieces together. 
it's well worth our time to do so. You know, Vince Lombardi was a famous coach in uh, Green Bay Packers at one time in the past. And when he got his, his uh, players together for their spring practice for their first time together, he hold out a football and said, men, this is a football. And you might look at that and say, this is ridiculous. These guys have been playing football since they were, you know, knee high to a grasshopper. And now you're gonna tell them, this is a football? But it was important, if you understand what's happening here, people come into that situation with all kinds of expectations. What are they gonna personally achieve? What role do they wanna play? How are they gonna act in these kinds of situations? How are they gonna fit in with a team? All kinds of personal things. And they have to be drawn back to the fact that this is a team sport. You don't win or lose just because you're a wide receiver. You don't win and the other people lose. You, you all win as a team or you lose as a team. And they have to start at the beginning with what's a football? How do you hold a football? What do you do with a football? How do you work together as a team so that each person does their role? And I think that's true of the Christian life as well. There are different roles that we play, but we're all on the same team. Really, we are. There's uh, some key events that we could talk about. There's birth. We all were born, obviously. Second one key event in our life is rebirth. Jesus called it being born again. Theological term is justification. And there's the final event is death, or uh, what the world sees when this body passes away and turns to dust. But what God says that event is is glorification. That's the theological term for it. And sanctification that we've mentioned is that what happens between rebirth and glorification, that process. It's not a point, it's a process. So we just want to be clear about the terms. So even though the, the requirements of 1 Timothy 3 are visible attributes, they're uh, behavior things for the most part, the key fundamental issue that we can't forget is it's an issue of our heart. It's out of our heart that wickedness proceeds, says Jesus. It's the heart that he has come to replace. The things in God's, all the things that, excuse me, <clears throat> that God is ministering to us lead us towards holiness. <coughs> he isn't content to leave us where we are. He is the good shepherd and we, his sheep, <clears throat> hear his voice and follow him what we desire is like Job he said in <clears throat> Job 23 I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food we want to have that love of God's word love of following Christ more than even our necessary food but in under just in order to better understand that, I want to switch gears at this point a little and send us back to a passage of Scripture we probably studied different points at different times in our life, but maybe just to skim through it and see how it addresses the whole issue of repentance and its fruits. And that Scripture is the Sermon on the Mount, especially the first 16 verses of chapter 5 of Matthew. But first, some context. At this point, when Jesus is going to give this, he's gone through the interaction with John the Baptist, He's, uh, <clears throat> who is preaching the kingdom of heaven. He's accomplished his first miracle in Cana of Galilee. He's gone to the temple and cleaned out the temple. He started doing wondrous acts of healing and uh, casting out demons all over the land. It says that huge crowds from this whole area of Galilee and Decapolis and even Tyre and Sidon on the coast, all these people were coming to him. They heard of what he was doing. <clears throat> and when Jesus was, John the Baptist rather, was in prison, and Jesus, Jesus started preaching the repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand as well. And in fact, in Nazareth, he basically proclaimed that he was the Messiah. He was the fulfillment of a prophecy in Isaiah. That's the rough outline in the context for this. But what about the people of Israel? What did they think? Well, they had an obvious... Uh, interest in the, in the Messiah's coming. If they were a student of Scripture, they would know that the time 
specified in Daniel from the time of the rebuilding of the temple until Messiah came was coming to fruition. It was 483 years approximately later. They would also see the prophetic witness of John the Baptist. I mean, who wouldn't be impressed by a guy like him dressed in, uh, in camel cloth with a crude belt and eating uh, grasshoppers? That would, that would kind of attract a lot of attention, even today. And they were under the impression of the Romans. So you might think, certainly that would be a great time for the Messiah to come. Many of us today think that as well. It'd be a great time for the second coming. So it's a common thought when oppression happens, when we're confronted with the circumstances of the, of the society that we live in. And certainly at their time, they're thinking back to the promises of God in the re- recreation of Solomon's kingdom. When Solomon was in charge, all the Gentile nations of the world at that time around them were under, paid tribute to him. They were under him. He was the big dog. They would bring gold and silver into Jerusalem so it was, it was as common as uh, stones on the street. They wanted to make Israel great again. And they thought, we're ethnic Jews. We received the law of Moses from God's hand. He brought us out of Egypt. Uh, we're the chosen people of God. What time could be better than this for the Messiah to come and solve these problems? And then there were the things that Jesus was doing. (laughs) Nobody could deny that he had special power. Anybody that could speak and heal a person was different, out of the ordinary. And you could think, that power would be pretty cool to have if you were in a military conflict, wouldn't it? your troops get killed or something like that, you just go zap and they pop back up and they're ready to go again, just like a video game. So uh, there was a lot of attraction in Jesus and a lot of things to indicate that he might be the Messiah, but what was the thing about repentance? How did that fit in to all these prophecies? And how does the kingdom of heaven fit with the prophecies of the Messiah's kingdom? So there was an electric undercurrent in popular thinking about the coming of the Messiah, but they were thinking about somebody who would bring health and wealth to their country. <clears throat> and Jesus did have signs, but his message was confusing. So I think Jesus really started to give the Sermon on the Mount message to crowds in order to answer the three questions typical of the Jews about the kingdom of heaven. And they would be, how does one gain citizenship? If it isn't being an ethnic Jew, what is it? What is life like in the kingdom? If it isn't a kingdom of health and wealth, what kind of kingdom is it? And what kind of role does the law of Moses play? That seems so important. And so you might, one way of looking at it, I think, is to see the Sermon on the Mount is the king's inaugural address. This is Jesus saying, he's laying out his program for what his kingdom is like. You know, when he talked to Pilate, he said his kingdom is not of this world. So that's what was very confusing too to the Jews. So when he jump into the Sermon on the Mount type message, especially as recorded in Matthew 5 to 7, we wanna look especially at the first 16 verses of chapter five, but I think there's three sections. There's this first section, which is the entrance and living conditions, really defines what repentance is and what are the consequences of repentance. Second is on the law, chapter 5, 17 to 48, which talks about basically showing people that if you really interpret the law correctly, nobody can be saved by it. His last summary there, if you remember right, verse 48 is, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, that, can't, that doesn't, doesn't jive with who we are. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, Ray Comfort calls, calls his uh, evangelistic uh, approach the way of the master. And so we might call that as well, showing that the law, first that the law condemns, it doesn't save. 
But Jesus also gave a hint about who he was because he said he was the only law keeper. He was going to fulfill the law. And who can fulfill the law? Somebody as perfect as God. And who can do that? God. So Jesus was telling them he was God, basically. And then the last part is details on the kingdom of heaven life. In other words, the kingdom of heaven is not of this world, but it's in the world. Right? So there's a contact between the kingdom of heaven, the people who are in the kingdom of heaven in the world, outside, and there's also the presence of false disciples in the, that are pretending like they're in the kingdom of heaven but aren't. So Jesus has to address both of those issues when he goes into it. And it's really important for us today, I think, because it prevents a beautiful picture of salvation, starting with repentance and sanctification, how we walk after we're saved, and glorification, how we're promised the kingdom at the end. So let's look at those uh, one at a time. Maybe flip with me to uh, Matthew 5. The first criteria he points out is blessed are those who are poor in spirit for theirs in the kingdom of heaven. So what exactly is poor in spirit? Poor in spirit means that when I come to God, I have to come to him desperate as he is the only relief for what I seek. I can't come to him with a merit on my own. I can't say, God, you, you need to do this because I'm such a good guy. No, you come to God because you're not a good guy and you're desperate for his, his forgiveness and his mercy. But note, what's really interesting here theologically is that this person who comes to God poor in spirit is promised the kingdom of heaven but so is the guy who is persecuted is promised the kingdom of heaven so what goes on here well I think what Jesus is showing us here is the doctrine of the sovereignty of God and salvation when you start down the trail of salvation if you're really repentant God is calling you to repentance and he ensures that that goes all the way through all the way through to glorification in the end. This is God's promise here from Matthew 5. Next is the criteria of mourn. Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What's that about? The mourning, the issue of mourning here is mourning over sin. It's not mourning because, uh, you know, I had a car accident or I burned my food when I was cooking breakfast. It's mourning about sin, that we realize the God that we're coming to, poor in spirit, is a God of holiness. He's not to be trifled with. Sin isn't mistakes we make. It's not an unfortunate misunderstanding. Psalms 31 expresses some of this. Verse 10 says, For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing, My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Our sin has physical consequences to us and it comes with sorrow. We see sin as evil, an excusable offense against the holy God. But in this verse, we are promised comfort. We are coming to the right place with our sin. We aren't wallowing in remorse. We aren't lost somewhere. We are coming to God because he's a God of mercy and grace. The next point in, uh, let's see, verse 6, it says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The word meek isn't used very often now, so maybe you have to explain it a little. Uh, It's a word basically for power under control. And the way I'd like to picture it maybe paint this picture for you, is picture this, a knight in armor bowing down before his king, taking his helmet off and giving the king a sword by the hilt. At that point, he's basically saying, my life, everything I am is in your hands, king. You do with it what you will. And it's the same way when we come before Christ with repentance. Everything we are, everything we have, has to be laid on the table. We're not holding anything back. It's not a negotiation. 
We're not negotiating a truce. This is like unconditional surrender. Psalms 32, verse 5 and 6 says, I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you. So a couple things to notice there. When we take the third step and cry out to God, the result is we inherit the earth. That's another way of saying we're going to be glorified because the messianic promises and the promises of revelation say at the end the kingdom of heaven is going to be a kingdom of the earth so he's saying here when you get to that step you're going to inherit the earth other words you're going to be a part of god's glorified kingdom in the end what a promise that is so this is a miraculous step when we cry out to god and he miraculously saves us by his grace And now the promises of the kingdom of heaven will become the kingdom of earth in due time. Are there any special words required, you might say? Is this kind of like the Boy Scout oath? Or uh, the commissioning ceremony when you become an officer in one of the military services? Well, no, there aren't any special words because it's an issue of the heart. And we can see that in many cases in the Bible. One that we can look at maybe a little depth, is the issue of the, the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. Remember those? Two guys went to the temple. They went to the right place. The temple was associated with the worship of God. Pharisee and a publican. And Jesus talks about the Pharisee, and he says the Pharisee was praying to himself. What? Can you pray to yourself? Well, yeah, I've probably done it <laughs> before myself. Because when I, when I focus on myself and what I'm doing... <laughs> rather than focusing on the God who's calling me to repentance, I can fall into that trap. And the Pharisee did that. He was saying basically, thank God that I'm such a great guy. God, you're, you ought to be really pleased because I'm here. But how about the other guy? How about on the other side, the publican? The publican stood far off. It says his head was bowed. Whereas the Pharisee's hands were up, outstretched. He was outwardly looked like he was talking to God. And that was the way they commonly worshiped, you know, with their head up and their hands up. The publican comes, his head is bowed. He can't look up at God. He's so burdened by his sin, but he's come to the right place. And it says he's beating his chest. Okay, an expression of the inner turmoil, we can't see what's on his heart until he speaks, which is the next thing he does. And he says, have mercy on me, a sinner. So you see the steps that we've talked about in Matthew 5. He came to the right place. He came to God with nothing. No offering, no compromise, nothing to offer God. He came mourning over his sin and he cried out to God for mercy. And Jesus says he went home in joy because that's what the verse says here that we saw before in the morning is that they shall be comforted. God will comfort the repentant heart. And there are other examples that you could look at. I won't go into them, but uh, another would be the thief on the cross and Paul. And you'll see that the words that they use and the confirmation that they're actually saved is different in every case. At this present time, of course, after, we live after the cross. This was all before the cross, so we have a new appreciation for how God accomplishes his forgiveness. What does he do to accomplish justification? Because that's in the cross of Christ. And we know that confessing Our sins to God also means confessing Christ as Lord and believing in his resurrection. So we have a a fuller expanding of that, but that's still in in the overall umbrella of what Jesus is expressing here. Note two, at the end of verse 32, he says it's the godly that seek forgiveness. The godly will come to God. What is that? Well, that's an expression that we started with, is that the godly aren't perfect. Is that a surprise to anybody? (laughs) No, it shouldn't be, because we aren't perfect. And we're all in this progress, if we're saved, 
We are all in this progress of moving forward as God is leading us. <clears throat> and we come to God in forgiveness, just like John says. He says, no one, uh, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. Truth is not in you. But if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that's where we live, folks. That's where, that's where we live. <clears throat> What's the opposite of forgiveness? Well, I think the opposite is bitterness, holding grudges, thinking evil of others, keeping track of wrongs suffered. We're very good at that, aren't we? We can probably remember things that, we've, that have offended us or we've been a, that have uh, felt harsh to us. We can remember those things quite well and we can bring them up. But that's not uh, good for us. It's not what God commands here. Even Ephesians 4.31 says, uh, well, yeah. Let me remind you of first of uh, Ephesians 4.32. It says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God has in Christ forgiven you. See the, the parallel? God has in Christ forgiven us. That's the basis for our spirit of forgiveness. And we can be kind and forgiving to one another. And this is for all the body of Christ. It's not just the elders. It's all of us. We're in this together. <clears throat> but bitterness can crop up. And Ephesians 4.31 says this about bitterness. It says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice. And here's a youthful aphorism that I learned once that I think is helpful in this point. And that's this. Bitterness is the poison I drink hoping that others die. So bitterness is the poison I drink hoping that others will die. So we're really hurting ourselves and we're hurting the body of Christ when we hold on to bitterness. Another thing, a problem we have here probably is, is we see a hierarchy of sins. God, in, for instance, in Colossians 3, 5 and 6 says, put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And to that we say, amen, and we should. We should do as, as God commands there. But then we often intend to ignore what follows in verses 8 and 9 and says, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, and since these attitudes are hidden, we can tend to ignore them and minimize this command. In other words, we don't see those things that are hidden in our heart. They can pass on, and we can hold them for a long time, but they are very serious and God is very concerned. Another thing we might uh, study about forgiveness is, is the issue of uh, the other party. We might claim, well, they should show fruits of repentance to ensure that their forgiveness is real. But compare that assertion to how you receive the forgiveness of God. God knows everything. Since you were saved, have you ever sinned? I think most people would say, yeah, I've sinned, right? And if we've sinned, have we really shown the fruits of repentance as, you, as we are often want to hold other people responsible for? See, there's a contradiction there. So we have to, when we approach forgiveness, it has to be of the same type of forgiveness that God offers to us. The issue of mercy is very important. It says in uh, the next verse, oh, I think I skipped over a page here, so let me go back a minute. The uh, result of being saved, verse six, says we'll hunger and thirst for righteousness and they'll be satisfied. So, wow, what a change salvation makes. Before we were living the Romans 3, 10 through 12 life, we had no righteousness, we didn't understand, we didn't care for the things of God, we were uh, t 
totally apart from him. We didn't seek him. That was where we were. That's where we're living. But then after God saves us, draws us through salvation, as, as Jesus talks about in uh, John 6, we have a new attitude, a new heart. Now we hunger and thirst for righteousness. Like Psalms 86 says, teach me to f- your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Now we desire God and value his word. What was impossible before is so no longer. So that's one of the big evidences of whether you're really saved or not. Have you really seen your hunger and thirst for righteousness grow? And your hunger and thirst for God's word? That's an evidence that he has changed your heart and he is changing your heart. The next one, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. We receive mercy, as this verse says, from God, and we are to extend the same kind of mercy to others. This is, I believe, the most radical evidence of our salvation, is mercy. It's very easy to get together as a, a group, to shake hands, to pat each other on the back, to do those kind of things. You can find that kind of fellowship in uh, a secular club. It's very hard to be close together where we actually try to seek out to know each other personally and we, because when that happens, we find out that we're still sinners and we find out that we offend people. We find out that we may say things that are not uh, comfortable to everybody. And uh, so there are opportunities or issues with forgiveness in our life. How are we gonna relate to the fellowship of the Christ, the body of Christ? And that's why mercy is so important and why the body of Christ is such a unique thing in the world. And I think there's a couple elements we have to understand in forgiveness. One is it has to be real. A friend in Louisiana, and he would phrase it, he'd say, you have to have a dog in the race. Like you have to, there has to be something that's really heartfelt that's an issue for you personally. I mean, I can forgive the Boston Marathon bomber but it has no impact on me. <laughs> I didn't know anybody, just an unfortunate event, you know. But if I was a person who had his legs blown off in the, bo- in the marathon bomber, for me to come forward and say, I forgive you, I have a dog in the race at that point. I'm, this is a real forgiveness. And it's not, the other thing is it's not a quid pro quo. We're not negotiating with God but we're modeling what Christ did for us when he forgave us for our sins. And I think there's a warning in later on the Sermon on the Mount that's applicable here. It says, many will come to me, Lord, and saying, Lord, Lord, speaking, and they won't be people who are doing the will of the Father, but instead they're, they're servants of lawlessness. We have to keep that in mind. And so this is another amazing confirmation of whether you're saved. Do you really have, and if we're following God, do you really have this spirit of forgiveness? Are you able to know people in Christ and the body and really have a spirit that reaches out and forgives them and unites? Or do you hold bitterness in your heart? And Jesus, just to make sure that we haven't uh, missed the point, later on in the Lord's Prayer, He says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The same kind of thing. Forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. He puts those two together. And if we are inclined to to think that we missed, that he is misspoken or we don't understand it right, of all the statements in the Lord's Prayer that are there, the only one he talks about to exposit on his own and expound further is that one about forgiveness. He spends two verses on it. He says this, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. And there are other examples in Scripture. The parable of the unforgiving servant is really an important one. Jesus forgiving his crucifiers from the cross. Jesus forgiving the thief on the cross. And his exhortation in the epistles like, we mentioned in Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tender hard, forgiving one another. 
even as God is in Christ forgiven you. So I'm going to race through the others. We don't have time to cover them. The next one is pure in heart. They shall see God. Notice that the only person that can see God is people that are totally pure. And the only way we get purity is 2 Corinthians 5.21. When we are covered by the righteousness of Christ, when his righteousness is imputed to us. So he's talking about that in advance. And then there's the uh, peacemakers that call the sons of God because Scripture tells us when we repent and we come to Christ for salvation, we have peace with God. We're no longer his enemies and alienated from him. We're at peace with God. And uh, that vertical relationship we have with God is critical for how our horizontal relationships go. If we have this one right with God, then we can see the sin in our own heart and we can solve these problems on this level. The last one is, uh, or the last two, one is persecuted. This would be obviously shocking to the Jews as it is to us. And uh, we're looking for, they were looking for Israel to be great again like the time of Solomon. But if, if that's true of this new kingdom of heaven and Jesus is king, why are his servants persecuted? And this was certainly an issue even for John the Baptist who sent his disciples to Jesus when he was in prison. And basically is, he was asking him, are you the one or do we look for another? Well, what he's asking him basically is, if you're the Messiah and I'm your herald, why am I in prison? <laughs> this doesn't make sense. This doesn't fit with what I think the kingdom of the Messiah should be like. So everybody wonders about this, but our encouragement is found elsewhere. It's found in the promise of, for instance, Romans 11:33, where it says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever, all men. Amen. So that's what gives us confidence. That's what gives us that he is still in charge. He is building his church. He is guiding us through this phase where the kingdom of heaven is kind of an alien kingdom on the earth. And the last part is salt and light. In other words, if we're, even though we're persecuted, we have a tendency to, to shy away from further hostility. That's natural. But Jesus calls us still to be salt and light because we're ambassadors for Christ. So let's break down the shift from there now that we see the kind of the full picture of where our heart is and how it relates to sanctification. Let's shift to these qualifications for elders and I'll tie it together real quickly here. Two, there's uh, two, two summary qualities mentioned, one at the end, one at the, big, at the, I mean, one at the beginning, one at the end. They're kind of like uh, bookends to what he's talking about. And because the last one says, well thought of by outsiders, I tend to think the first one is more about uh, how you're viewed in the church. And uh, I'll talk about them later when we get to uh, the elders. And we'll discuss it a little further there. Then there are uh, eight more qualities. What I've done is put them into pairs where I think they're sort of like the positive and the negative. Do this, but don't do that. The only one that's like that in the, in the scripture we read was gentle but not violent. But I think if you look at what the words mean, they all kind of can fit together if we pair them up. And this is the way I thought it made sense. Sober-minded versus not a lover of money. Sober-minded means we're clear-headed, alert, eternally focused. Our focus is up above the kingdom of heaven and we're not focused on accumulation on the earth. That's not our, our uh, primary goal in life. Two is self-controlled, where I put that in opposition to, to being a drunkard. Self-controlled person is disciplined, they're serious in their actions, and they're not inclined to self-gratification. Number three was respectable, and I tied that with not quarrelsome. Respectable means we honor others, we lead a responsible life, and we don't have a quick, backbiting, slanderous, or vicious tongue when we relate to people. 
example of that is my uh, father-in-law when uh, he was a small-time businessman in a small town in uh, New Mexico. And uh, he did a lot of good things for the town to try to help the town survive. But that brought him into opposition with people in other towns who were likewise some of the bigger towns uh, didn't care about little towns like Portales. And uh, so he had a lot of opposition, some support, and he did a lot of good for that town. But anyway, his, uh, at his funeral memorial service in uh, 2006, one of his friends who had known him during this whole time came up to me and told me, he says, you know, I've known Ken all these years. In all that time, I've never heard him say a hateful thing about anybody. That's quite a record, living in that town for over 50 years and being involved in all these things. And so that's, I think, is, a, is an example for all of us as well, certainly for me. And the last one was gentle and not violent. Gentle person is gracious, tender, considerate of others, remains calm when provoked, as opposed to being pugnacious or vengeful. So those are the pairings I had. You can think about that a little more and how you would orient them what those words mean. At the end, there's a composite uh, demonstration, which I set apart by itself, and that's hospitality. Hospitality is where we open our homes, our lives to others. This is where we start seeing what we're really like, and we start exercising compassion and forgiveness and love of the brothers, tender-hearted, forgiving each other. This is where it happens, and it plays into the later requirement that, that we talked about, the first two that I'll talk about more later in Elders. Next is a one-woman man. Men are to maintain a singular devotion to their wife and sexual purity in thought and deed. Think of all the ways that wives are uh, talked about in the Bible. They're talked about as a gift from God, a source of rejoicing, a delightful helper, uniquely qualified to be by my side, a precious, delicate vessel, and we are to love her as Christ loved the church and sacrificed himself for her. So God wants us to seek out our wife, to understand who she is, to seek her counsel, to confess our weaknesses, and to share our life as joint heirs of the grace of God. And I can confess here a problem I've had in the area after, before we retired, Carol and I often would uh, do our errands separately. You know, she'd do her things while I was at work and I'd do my th- things when I got home or on the weekend or whatever and we do our things. But once we retired, we started doing a lot of things together and I found a very strange thing. We had different paradigms for how we drive. <laughs> I won't go into all the details, but they were different. and it, and it caused some uh, you know, perturbation, I should say, in a pleasant way on my side. This is not how I expect people to drive. And I'm sure on her side it was like, this is not, this is not the car I want to be in. <laughs> so uh, I came to be convicted of that, that it was really an issue of uh, my pointless pride. You know, after all, I'd been driving for 60 years. I've flew jet aircraft, you know, I mean, come on. I can certainly get from A to B, but it was really just pride on my point, pettiness, if you want to say it. So I just say to all of us out here, men, we can do better. It's our benefit to find the best advice we can get in order to be the leaders that God wants us to be in our home. And we find that often from our wife. She's also the source of sincerest encouragement and the best at relational difficulties. There's one saying that I remember that I think is kind of humorous, but probably very apropos for us men. It's this, men are like a spark of awareness in a sea of oblivion. That's where we are, men. So anything we can get from our wives to help us to be more relational, to understand what's going on, it's good. So let us grow 
up as men and be the leaders that God wants us to be. And here are some questions to ask yourself. Where have I been so convinced that I am right that I have been unwilling to hear my spouse's perspective or to re-examine my own viewpoints? How often do I jump to things before I really hear what is being said? How do I typically respond when my spouse challenges my thinking or decisions? Do I ask her what what she thinks? Ask her where are the issues that are that are different? How uh, what her proposal would be to counter that? And do I make a rational decision, or am I trying to protect my pride? When do I tend to become quickly irritated and annoyed, responding impulsively out of anger? And what impact does anger have on my spouse and her willingness to be open and honest in communication? Obviously, it will have some. And. How does this align, the things that make me angry, how does that align with the treasures that I have in this world? Do I treasure my wife or do I have other treasures that don't align with God's word? And the second one is manage households well. Households ought to be well ordered, but for many of you who remember the sound of music, remember what they did? They signed a dog whistle to each kid. So that when they blow the whistle in a certain way, that kid would come running and stand in attention and be ready to follow orders. Well, that's not what it means to be well-ordered. Men, God instructs us, are not to be exasperating to their children and causing discouragement, but rather we're to be teaching and nurturing them. And we have a great influence on our children, even if you don't think so at various times. And I think I've failed in that area too, in child-rearing sometimes, where I'd I probably stressed behavior more than heart change. I looked at the obvious physical behavior, but I didn't see the heart that was underlying it, and I didn't ask questions enough and didn't understand what was going on in their kids' hearts. And so let let this serve as a warning to you as well, and to all of us, either in the church or at home. We can maintain godly order, but we can do it according to the principles that God provides for us. And here's a warning to you men. If you're leading a double life, you know, happy and happy-go-lucky and well-mannered in church, but when you get home, you're harsh, vindictive, demanding, insulting, don't think you'll escape God's judgment or find satisfaction in what you're doing. You won't. Rather, repent for real and experience a changed heart that produces humble leadership in your home and see both your joy and your confidence in the future increase. Now there's a couple of principles, three applicable to elders only. One is male. I don't think I have to discuss that because we understand that gender is one of God's designs for us just like everything else. There's nothing different about that versus other things. He knows our gender, he knows the role of different people in the church, he knows the role we're called to. So that's what it is. Serving an elder is a good thing, but we're also warned that you're subject to stricter judgment. Next is a desire to serve. He says that those called, are, uh, it's a good thing to, be, to desire to serve as an elder. And all are called to minister in different ways. And God influences our desires to help guide us in the ways we should minister. But our desires may not be exactly what, what God is driving. It may be driven by other things in our lives. So we gotta be careful that we're not doing this because of ambition or desire to exalt self, but we're really trying to serve others and to let the body of Christ help guide our steps in the future. But know this, that all ministry has eternal consequences. It's not just uh, these ministries are important and these don't. No, they all have eternal consequences. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, uh, 4, 2 Corinthians 4, 1, there have, therefore having this ministry by the mercy of God, that's how you have a ministry. It's the mercy of God. He's not calling you into the church to be a zombie or to be a a couch potato. He's calling you in to do something that has eternal value and consequence for for the church, for his glory. 
<clears throat> but the church, the desire to serve must also be evaluated. And that's where I think these two uh, character qualities about being above reproach and well thought of come into play because all of us have a, have a role. If we're hospitable, if we're knowing people, if we're confessing our sins, we have the perspective that allows us to nominate people for elders and to evaluate what their role is like. And the above approach is, is the sense of no valid accusation of wrongdoing, well thought of by outsiders. Some people may oppose the gospel and so they don't necessarily uh, relate to you well on that level. But I guess the question would be, how do you relate back to them? You know, do you scoop up stuff in your yard and throw it over the fence? That's, uh, that's not the uh, godly way of relating to people who uh, on the outsiders. And that's, that circumstance, even though it's applied to elders here, is applied to everybody in the church. Colossians 4, verse 5 and 6 says, Let our speech be gracious. Walk in wisdom to outsiders and make the best use of our time. You can see how those relate in many ways to the things that we've just talked about. Neither evaluation of elders or of people in the church implies perfection, but men should be able to withstand scrutiny, demonstrating a studied and consistent direction to their life. And the last is, a, is a, the elders' candidates are approved by the elders. There's a, a process that the elders go through they know the rigors of the ministry and they can help the candidate understand what those rigors are to evaluate his, his uh, maturity and willing, able, ability to lead, shepherd, oversee, and to teach the church. And finally, there's teaching the church. These are the skills, of course, that can be improved, just like all our skills. Even uh, you know, working in the kitchen can be improved. All, the skills we hit, there are skills behind all these things and they can be improved, that's not the issue. But God does give uh, wisdom and maturity through the Holy Spirit as we study his word. So the, right, the first thing is we handle the word of God rightly. These are the principles for uh, proper interpretation. The theological word for that is hermeneutic. And what we're trying to find the authorial intent. What does it really communicate when it was written? And we use this thing called the uh, literal, grammatical, historical, contextual hermeneutic. And all those words have meaning. If you want to look more, look at an a introduction to hermeneutics by, uh, I think, Zuck. It's one of the books we used in the elders. Very good, and especially in terms of the uh, uh, figures of speech. Many more figures of speech than you've probably ever thought of in your life. But they're all categories out there, very helpful. <clears throat> Good grasp of sound doctrine and how to apply it to refute error and to so you're not led astray. For example, the issue that I've stressed here about the non-perfection is a doctrinal error that some of the churches around us practice. They teach that you can become totally perfect through some instantaneous second gift of God course they also have to admit that it doesn't last <laughs> just curious you have to redo it again but they do they do say it can be achieved even for a short time but uh, that's an error that doesn't match scripture as we've seen today in these verses so these are the kinds of things that we need to be to point out to you so that we're not cast about by the wind of doctrine inability to communicate in clear gracious humble and authoritative manner because it is a word of God it's not it's not the word of the uh, Seattle PI. So, in conclusion, God leads us all in the ministries in which he's called us, and he may, is actively calling some to engage as elders, but he calls us all to engage in the common gospel purpose of our church. So let's all pursue Christ-likeness. And something here that I thought would be out worthwhile as he go is to look at the last chapter of John where uh, John takes Peter aside and he tells him how Peter's going to die for the gospel. You think that might be encouraging, but I think for Peter it was encouraging because it said he wasn't going to fall away. 
and he had fallen away, remember, when Christ was crucified. So that was probably an issue of, of him. He needed to be encouraged to know this time it's not going to be that way, Peter. You're going to go all the way. And, uh, but Peter looks around and he sees John going after him and he thinks, well, what about this guy? And I don't know exactly what Peter was thinking. He doesn't inform us. And Jesus kind of skips over that, tells him, don't worry about that. I'm sovereign. You, and he says, Peter, you follow me. So follow Christ, that's, that's the exhortation we have. So let me exhort you from the heart. You, congregation, follow Christ, whatever you do. And let's do it, turn it around, because we're all in the body together, let's turn it around. Let me read off the elders, and you pick one name out of this group, whichever name you want, could be your shepherding elder, could be somebody else that you're attracted to or know or whatever, small group. Pick that name and we'll do the opposite. So here's the names, Mark McMinn, Ken Lilly, Paul Cummings, Samuel Blakey, Lance Swenson, Bill Michelson, John Watson, Randy Mays, Dan Young, and myself, Derek Iverson. So what I want you to do is I'm gonna count out, I want you to pick the first name of the name that you chose, and I want you to exhort them to follow Christ all together. So one, two, three. Oh, that was, that was terrible. <laughs> okay, that was, that was like, uh, do it this time like you're cheering on the mayor the Seahawks because they won a game, okay? <laughs> so I'll give one, two, three. You say the first name of whoever it is, and then you follow Christ after that. Exhort them to follow Christ and keep that in your prayers. Okay, so let's do it again. One, two, three. Yeah. There you, you follow Christ. That was much better. Thank you. God bless you. And uh, Paul's going to come up now, and we're going to share communion together.